And do you have anything to be thankful for? I want to tell you um, three quick stories, and we'll make an application. The stories are true, and they actually happened. There was a man, started out as most of us do, as a little infant. His name was Joash. And he grew up in a violent world. Um, and I'll say one name, and most of you will know who I'm talking about. Jezebel. Ahab and Jezebel, they were the worst kings that the northern kingdom had. And usually we think about um, treachery and violence um, and manipulation and control, you're talking about Jezebel. Well, Jezebel and Ahab had a daughter. And her name was Athaliah. And she married one of the sons of Jehoshaphat, who was the good king of the southern kingdom of Judah. And she married his son, Jehoshaphat's son, Jehoram. And Jehoram was not the man that his father had been. Jehoshaphat was a good king. He loved the Lord and he tried to direct the kingdom of Judah into walking closer with God. Jehoram was just the opposite. And um, after ruling for quite a while, he died a horrible, excruciating death from an incurable disease. Well, they put his young son Ahaziah as king of Judah. And Ahaziah was put to death by Jehu when Jehu in the north came and attacked uh, Ahab and Jezebel. And he put them to death, and he also put Ahaziah to death because they had been in a war. Well, that left Athaliah. Now, what this woman did, she was the true daughter of her mother. She went in and took, now these are her own descendants now, and she slaughtered all of her own household family, killed them all, because she was going to take over the kingdom. She had been the wife of a king, and she had been the mother of a king, and now she was going to become queen of the country, and that's what she did. She went in and took over. And so she's killing all of her kids and all of her grandkids, but Jehoram had a sister named Jehoshabeth, Jehoshabeth. Now, Jehoshabeth was the daughter of King Jehoram, and she was wife of the high priest Jehoiada. And they took Joash, who at that time was one year old, a tiny little baby, and she was going to kill him. Um, Jehoshabeth got there first. And so she took him, and um, she and her husband... Um, Jehoiada the priest hid him in the temple of the Lord for six years while Athaliah ruled the country. When Joash was seven, Jehoiada had planned a, a military takeover, a military coup. He worked that out among the, um, the, all the priests and all the bodyguard of the king and the chief officers of the army. And they took over the country um, Athaliah was put to death, and at seven years old, Joash was made a king. 
And he ruled for quite a while. And Jehoiada was his advisor. And as Jehoiada, who had saved this kid's life, put him on the throne and became his wise counselor, all the time that Jehoiada was alive, Joash did what was right. I mean, he was right there. He was doing what was right, steering the country right. But then when you get to Second Chronicles chapter 24, things take a turn. So what happened was Jehoiada died. He was 130 years old. He had been um, a long life, and he had been the king's advisor since the kid was seven years old. In Second Chronicles 24, 17, after the death of Jehoiada, the princes of Judah came and paid homage to the king. The king listened to them, and they abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served the Asherim and the idols. And wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for his, this guilt of theirs. Yet he sent prophets among them to bring them back to the Lord. These testified against them, but they would not pay attention. Well, then the Spirit of God came upon Jehoiada's son. His name was Zechariah, a priest. The Spirit of God came upon him, and he spoke out very strongly, prophetically, publicly, against the king. So Jehoash, this is the point, verse 22, they uh, conspired against Zechariah and the king commanded him to be stoned with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus Joash the king did not remember the kindness that Jehoiada Zechariah's father had shown him, but killed his son. How grateful are you? Uh, this man's forgot all that Jehoiada and his family had done for him. That meant that he was raised in Jehoiada's family. He knew Zechariah. Y'all remember Hezekiah. Hezekiah, this great godly king. And he loved the Lord. He really did. And God used him to have a, a revival in the kingdom of Judah several years later. And uh, things were going very well. They got attacked by Sennacherib of Assyria. That was the strongest military power in that whole part of the world. And no one, no one had been able to stand up against the Assyrians. And Hezekiah wasn't able to either. And you remember that they surrounded the, the Jerusalem after they had conquered the rest of the country. And they challenged God and Hezekiah. And God came through with a mighty deliverer, deliverance. 180,000 Roman uh, Assyrian troops died in one night. Um, Hezekiah and his troops didn't have to fire a shot. God came in and killed them all. Um, then he had a terminal illness, Hezekiah did. And in bitterness, he cried out to God for mercy. And God healed him, a miracle. But Hezekiah started looking around, and God had done a lot of things for him. And he had an international reputation now. This king stood up against the king of, of Assyria and survived. 
And so envoys from ba- Babylon came, um, and they came to, to see him. And Hezekiah became proud and arrogant in his heart. And so we were left with this verse in Second Chronicles chapter 32, verse 25. But Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him. He didn't remember all the blessings that God had given, for his heart was proud. Therefore, wrath came upon him and Judah and Jerusalem. Fortunately, Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of God did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. So here's this man, he'd been blessed in all of these ways, and yet he didn't remember the blessings, and he began to take credit for himself. So, has God blessed you? What about the attitudes of our heart? They used to talk to us uh, when I was growing up about the attitude of gratitude, and uh, Too often it's missing in our day and age. In Luke chapter 17, another very familiar story. This is the third one. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Um, It's going to be the last time for him. And he's passing along the border between Samaria and Galilee. And you know the, the Jews and the Samaritans hate each other. And he's going right through that border country on his way to Jerusalem. As he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance, lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Now, you know, lepers, they have to, usually they have a bell that they would ring in their distinctive dress, and people would know they're lepers just by looking at them because bits and pieces were falling off and decaying and stuff. It was um, like the body was beginning to decay and decompose while they're still alive. That's what leprosy does to people. And so they were considered unclean and outcast. So they had to leave their homes, their families, their jobs, their relatives, their friends, and live in separate communities. And any time they went anywhere, they would have to ring this bell and cry out, unclean, unclean, so everybody would get out of the way. Um, Because they didn't know what caused this disease, and there was no cure. And so people were scared. So those ten men, and they at a distance, being respectful and honoring what they're supposed to be, and they cry out to Jesus for mercy. Verse 14, when he saw them, he said to them, go, show yourselves to the priests. Because when you were cleansed of leprosy, if you thought you were, you had to go to the priest, and there would be a quarantine, and you would be examined during that time, And after a period of time, if they saw that you really were clean, you could go home, resume your life, pick it up, uh, be with your family, pick up your job and all of that. Your life would be restored. It would be almost like a resurrection, wouldn't it? So Jesus tells these men, go, show yourself to the priest. And as as they went, they were cleansed. And you see this over and over and over again throughout the scripture. This is where the miracles take place. Jesus gives a command or an instruction, and in the act of obedience, that's when the miracle occurs. Water changed into wine. 
He told them to go fill the, the pots with water. They did that, and as they were carrying it from there to there, the water that was there was wine when it got here because they were acting in obedience to God. And that's what was, took place here. These men, ten of them, they're walking along. Go show yourself to the priest. As you're walking along, you're looking to your neighbor and his hand's restored. Or his face. Uh, it, it's like it's like it never been sick. Pretty awesome. Then one of them, one, when he saw he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. Ten men going. Ten resurrections. Ten people cleansed and healed. Restored to their full life. One. said, man, this is what that guy had done for me. And he turns around and he goes and he falls at his feet and just says, thank you. What about the other nine? And that's what Jesus asked. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. So which group are you in? Are we with the, the one guy who realizes all that God has given and done and provided for us? Or are we part of the nine who said, wow, that's a miracle. That's great. I can do this. I can go that. I'm, I can go home. I can see my family. I can get back to work. I can do all of these things. Uh, wow, pretty neat thing. No thought for who or at what cost. So in Romans chapter 1, verse 21 and 22, says this, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So these are people who have known the truth and deliberately turned away from it. We gave three examples. Uh, there's, the scriptures are full of many, many examples here. Um, Joash... He took all the things that God had provided for him through Jehoiada and his family, and he ends up murdering their son. You have Hezekiah, who God had blessed so much, but his heart was so filled with pride as if he had done something great, and all of it was a gift from God. Paul asked the church at Corinth, what do you have that you have not received? And if you've received it, why do you boast as if you hadn't? That's a good question. And the lepers. Um, Jesus did what only God could do for them. And 
Oftentimes, we are like the lepers. We accept the blessing and we forget the thanks or who it was who made us well. So they've known God and they know the truth, but they deliberately turn away from it. Scripture tells us that people are made in the image of God, which means that we are responsible. That means we are able to respond. That's what it means. We are able to respond to God in a personal, intimate way. And that's one of the reasons that God created us, with that ability so that there could be a response. And we are accountable. That means we are able to give an account because he created us with the ability to choose. And our choices matter. They're important. Our choices influence history. Individual history, like yours and mine, your choices and my choices, determine to a large degree the direction and the quality that our life has. That's based on our choices. So it's an individual history. Our choices matter relationally, and our relationships have a history too. Uh, Those of you who are married, uh, there's a relationship, there's a history behind that relationship. Those of you who aren't, there's still a history behind the relationships that you have with the people around you. There's a history there. And corporately, groups, whether they're organizations, institutions, or nations, they have a history. Our choices do make a difference. Joshua understood that. You remember uh, toward the end of his life, he's getting ready to turn over the the leadership to other men and another generation. And he calls them all together after a lifetime of um, fighting and struggling, uh, going in and possessing the promised land that God had given to them, and they were successful. And Joshua calls them together and he says, Choose you this day whom you will serve. This choice influences your future. Elijah, a couple hundred years later, again calls the people of the northern kingdom together. And he says to them, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the choice you make will have a direct impact on your future and your history. Our choices are important. Romans says that while they knew God, they decided to rebel against him. They didn't glorify him. And they were not thankful. A lot of times, rebellion begins when we look around and become dissatisfied with who we're with or what we have or where we're going. Now, all of those things are mostly a result of our decisions. But we become unthankful, and when we're ungrateful, then we begin to gripe and complain. And that's how rebellion begins. So, Eve was in the garden. It was perfect. She was perfect. And she was married to a perfect man, believe it or not. And they lived in a perfect environment. There weren't bugs. There weren't weeds. 
You know, there's no mosquitoes or chiggers or any of those things. No thorns or thistles. It was a perfect place. It was a beautiful place. It was um, a perfect environment, climate-wise. Everything was perfect. And the serpent comes and begins to put a doubt and a question. And all of a sudden, in the midst of paradise, it's not perfect anymore. And he put a doubt in her mind that God is depriving you of something. And so she, like our entitlement generation, I deserve better than that, and I'm going to get it. Not realizing that she's in perfection. So what makes you unhappy? What makes you dissatisfied? Oh, it's my home, or it's my parents, or it's my kids, or it's my job, or it's my boss, or it's where I live. I'm just, I'm just not happy with all of these things. Well, first thing is, is there anything, anything that you can give thanks for where you are? Is there anyone that you can give thanks for where you are? And we choose to focus on the negative. Cain felt that way. Um, God came and spoke to him and warned him, and he went his own way anyway. That was really the heart of Satan, wasn't it? One of the archangels of God who stood in the presence of Almighty God. And he was not happy, and he was not thankful, and he rebelled. David was that way, Hezekiah was that way, Joash was that way, the lepers were that way. The first step in God's people, and note it's God's people now, turning away from him is ceasing to be in a relationship with him with a thankful heart. And that's what Paul says. They glorified him not as God, even though they knew him. They didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him. But their whole thinking became twisted and empty. And their foolish heart was darkened, and then they began to make stupid choices. So we could take a big rock and set it here. Who wants to bow down and worship that rock? You have to pick it up and carry it. Uh, you know, there were a lot of Hindus where, where we lived in Africa, and they had big temples. And they were big statues. And they would come in and they would wash those things and they would dress them every day. They would leave food for them there. They would take care of them. They would move them from place to place. And if they wanted to pray, they would go in and they would ring these bells to either wake them up or if they were on a journey, let them know that you wanted to talk to them. Um, and, you know, we're having to feed the gods well, God said, nope, I created you. I'll take care of you. That's what God does. If I have to take care of God, then who's God? So they, they did this all in the guise of wisdom and philosophy and learning and science and all the other things. And um, if we look in the churches at Ephesus and Laodicea and the seven churches that John wrote to from the island of Patmos. Church at Ephesus was strong doctrinally. 
I mean, they had the, the, the right doctrine, the right theology, the right beliefs, and they backed it up. And um, they tried those who weren't, and they were a strong stand for orthodoxy, but they had left their first love. And when you leave your first love, then there's no compassion and there's no thankfulness. And then you become harsh and judgmental and condemning and proud and arrogant. And it ends, those seven churches, with Laodicea, who were lukewarm, and they thought that they were completely self-sufficient and didn't need anything or anyone. And they prided themselves on that. Their city was destroyed by a violent earthquake. And the Roman government came in and says, we got government aid to help you. No thanks. We don't need your government aid. We can do this ourselves. And they did. And so they were completely self-sufficient. Uh, you don't have to ask anybody for anything. And so I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay, and, and we'll just get on with it and forget about God. Because if you're completely self-sufficient, what do you need God for? And so you're not grateful. So the Lord calls us into a proper relationship, remembering who it is who created who and what it is that he has done for us. And so Paul correctly asked the Corinthian church, what do you have you haven't received? Deuteronomy chapter 8 says, even the abilities to do a job has been a gift from God. He created that ability and gave it to you before you were born. And so you can say, well, I did this on my own. On my own strength, who gave you the strength? Where did it come from? Uh, well, I did this because of my own intelligence. Okay, well, where did that come from? So if it's not yours just because you're you. This is a gift which God has given. John tells us that in Christ Jesus was life, and of his fullness we have all received blessing upon blessing. And Paul tells us where we should be. We accept Christ into our hearts and Savior by faith. It's not something that we've done. It's faith in what Christ has done for us. It's not our faith that saves us. It's the finished work of Christ that saves us. And the faith that we have, that too, Paul tells us, is a gift from God. So we don't have faith in faith. We have faith in Jesus Christ. There are people who have faith who don't know God. They have faith in the wrong things, in the wrong person. So it's not the faith, our faith that saves us. Faith is the empty hands that comes before the Lord and receives the gifts and the blessings that he offers. That's what faith is. The ability to receive from God. And that comes with a thankful heart, with gratitude. So Paul writing to the church at Colossians, Colossae, um, in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, he says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thankfulness. So he says, 
It's not a once-off thing. Uh, the faith to receive the new birth is like a baby being born. And then you've got a whole life. And the purpose, one of the things that the baby's born for is in order to grow and mature and to, and to become what he or she was created to be. Their life isn't over at the moment of birth. It's just the beginning. And for healthy people, they continue to grow and mature. And they take more and more responsibility for themselves. And there begins to be a partnership and a grace and a mercy there. Paul's writing to the church at Colossae, and he says that's the same way that you continue to walk with Christ. Uh, you take what he has given you, it grows, it develops, it matures, and he continues to give, and he continues to watch over and provide, and by faith you continue to receive that with thanksgiving. And Paul continues to write to us in that way. So you know that we have communion in our church every Sunday. And part of that is because of, the, of what Christ has done for us. In liturgical churches, they call it um, what? What do they call it in liturgical churches? Eucharist. That's what they call it. And what does Eucharist mean? It means the great thanksgiving. That's what it means. And so as we come to celebrate this morning this great thanksgiving, we want to remember what it is that we're being thankful for. In Luke chapter 22, I want us to look at what Jesus has done for us. In verse 15, Jesus said to them, that's his disciples, I have earnestly desired, um, literally, literally with desire, I desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus said, I'm looking forward to this eagerly. And so he comes and um, what he says for Jesus, this Passover meal, the bread that he eats for him will be the bread of affliction. And the cup that he drinks will be the cup of suffering. But the bread of affliction for Jesus becomes for us the bread of life. And the cup of suffering for Jesus, for us, becomes the cup of forgiveness. And Jesus said, I've greatly desired this. And so in verse 19, it says that um, there in the upper room, that Jesus took the, the bread, and after he had given thanks, he knows what it means for him, but he also knows what it means for you and for me. And he gives thanks to God for this. And he says, this is my body. It's given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he's going to break that bread and said, this is my body broken for you. After supper, it says... 
He took the cup and he says, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. After giving thanks, he says, This represents my blood. It's going to be shed for you. It's a cup of forgiveness. It's a Passover meal, and Jesus himself is fulfilling what John said he was. He recognized him. Remember John the Baptist? He saw him when he first saw him, when he's coming down to the Jordan to be baptized. Now, he'd seen him before because he's his cousin. But when he saw him coming down to be baptized, the Holy Spirit bore witness to John the prophet, John the Baptist. And he says, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Messiah is here. And that's a cause for rejoicing. And so Jesus is our Passover lamb. That when the, the wrath of God sees the blood of the lamb on you and on me, he passes over. Because the life has already been killed. The sacrifice has already been paid. And so this is why it's the great thanksgiving. The thanksgiving on behalf, on behalf of Jesus, on our behalf. And then like the leper who comes back and realizes he's given us a new life, an opportunity to start over again. And he is imparting that to us free of charge. No strings attached. And so how thankful are you? And what kind of thanks do we offer up to the Lord? Do we say meals, prayers at the meals or at the end of the day because it's a habit, because it's a good thing to do? Do we do it because this is something that we ought to do, that we're told we should do as God's people? Is it an obligation? Or is it a privilege coming out of a genuine heart and spirit of thanksgiving and gratitude, acknowledging who God is and what He does for us every single day? And most of all, his death on the cross, his resurrection, that's for you and for me. It's not for him. He's the one person who did not need it. But he knew we did. And so he came joyfully, willingly, with thanksgiving and gratitude in his heart. And he comes that way this morning, and he says earnestly, with a great desire, I desire to share this with you. Not just in Jerusalem, but here this morning. Not just this morning, but every day of our lives. And he says, I'm here for you. I can walk with you. Or you can choose to turn your back on me and you can walk by yourself. And love creates the freedom for you to do that. With a broken heart, but the choice is yours. So, will those who are serving communion please come forward? Again, everyone is welcome. Um, Christ died for us all. We're all sinners. Need to be saved by grace. Everybody is welcome at this table. And um, we'll have someone over here to pray. Thank you. If anyone would like someone to pray for you uh, or with you, uh, we can sure do that. Body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, broken for you.